0: Welcome to the brownstein hyatt farber Shrek podcast series. brownstein hyatt farber Shrek shareholder Mike King moderated a discussion on the future of health care under the Trump administration. With health care costs representing 18% of the U.S. economy, President Trump has promised to repeal the Affordable Care Act, raising the stakes for health care higher than ever. The panel covered issues of contention in the rollout of Repeal and Replace, such as fee structuring, Medicaid, and accountable care organizations. Speakers included Brownstein Policy Director Kate McCandless and Strategic Advisor Barry Jackson, along with Quadriga Managing Partner Jason Ficken and Denver Public Health Director Dr. William Berman.
1: We're not gonna spend a ton of time on uh, the opening pleasantries, uh, other than to say that this is a policy discussion. So a lot of what's happening out there a lot of rotten eggs and tomatoes being thrown and uh, things being said, and that's on the sort of vitriolic side. And then on the humorous side, you know, we have some SNL sketches with Melissa McCarthy uh, and some other fun ones with Alec Baldwin. And uh, lost among all this, though, is serious policy discussion. What does this mean for business and healthcare leadership out there? Uh, and it seems that... Even the so-called serious news shows don't get too far beneath the the day-to-day grandstanding. So um, we're hoping to dive in. You all will have an opportunity to participate. Um, We're going to have a real-time app for polling where you'll get to vote on 15 different questions and be a part of the dialogue. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to kick it off um, with our Republican voice from the Hill, Barry Jackson. Uh, to give us his take on uh, what exactly happened in the election and what's likely to happen with health care going forward. And if you have five hours, he'll tell you the whole answer.
2: uh, It's one of the most challenging things right now is to try to look back to November and explain what happened. The simplest thing is a majority of Americans in enough electoral states decided, time to make America great again. Uh, the, the, I, would, I would say the interesting thing about this, though, is as you start to see the polling come through, um, one of the things that the new administration is going to face is that this divide in the country has yeah. not gone away. So the president, you know, today, two surveys came out by media organizations that had the president at 50 percent and 51 percent approval, which kind of reflects where the country is. And if you were a Trump person, you are ecstatic about what's going on right now. Uh, As I point out to people, if in October you had stopped and looked at the contract with the American voter, which was the Trump campaign's, here's what we're going to do in the first 100 days, there's not a single thing that has happened in the last three weeks that should be a surprise to anyone. Everything he has done is actually what he campaigned on and said he was going to do. People don't like it, which is okay. People in Washington are unused to politicians coming in and doing what they said they would do. And by the way, not listening to all of the, you know, quote unquote smart people in Washington about what the proper way to do it. Um, but it, it the thing that I think for people that are involved in policy and thinking about how this rolls out and how it impacts all your various interests, the most critical important thing to do over the course of the next three months is unless you're doing it for entertainment value, kind of stay away from the normal news programs. And that's Fox and and, and MSNBC is just... Because this day-to-day grind of ridiculousness obscures your ability to get up above the trees and look at what's actually going on. And I think what you'll find is that the, the maneuvers of government, the regular machine of government, led primarily by the Congress, but also by the agencies, never stops. It's just going to grind on. And so so. Anytime you see something and you're either ecstatic because it seems like nirvana or you're despondent because you think it's the apocalypse, chances are you're about 99% off. Just chill. We're 21 21 days into a 1,400-day stretch. Everybody's got to get the rhythm and got to get reworked here.
1: Well, that's well said, and um, I'm not sure if this is uh, joking or not, but supposedly, any anxiety medication sales have skyrocketed <laughs> since
2: election day. So, in the co- West Wing, don't quote me say, on that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, uh, Kate, as a strategist, what do you foresee coming out of the Trump administration on health care? There's been a lot of talk about. Just how much can they do through smash mouth tactics, uh, reconciliation, maybe say a word or two about what that is, uh, and then what will they need to get 60 votes to accomplish, and what are likely time frames? I know, you know they keep bouncing around a little bit, so this puts you on the spot.
3: So crystal ball, um, I, I think sort of backing up and taking a look at what has happened, as Barry said, with the, uh, the, the administration's position coming out of their contract, um, there are a few things that they were pretty clear about. Several of those things are finding their way into executive orders um, in one way or another. Um, I think you will see some executive orders on uh, the FDA process, which they will tout as a drug pricing initiative. Um, relatively soon, so that's another thing that's on the contract. Obviously, the ACA executive order is something that we've talked a lot about uh, internally and in Washington, but I don't think there's a whole lot of clarity just yet as to what exactly it allows for the agencies to do. I think the agencies will interpret that uh, once they all have figureheads and, and uh, secretaries, and there is someone there to make these decisions, from, uh, to various other point though, uh, from a congressional standpoint, the activity continues very much the way that it that it always has, and so we set up this uh, this reconciliation process by passing a budget that had instructions in it that requires committees to find savings, and in doing so. Uh, The package that they will put forth will not require a 60-vote threshold in the Senate, but instead will require just a simple majority, which is, frankly, the easiest way to get things passed the United States Senate. Ask Betsy DeVos if you don't know that. Um, So generally, those those initiatives have to impact the budget. So you can't just full-scale repeal a law through reconciliation, but you can take away uh, the things that pay for that law, and so I think you 're going to see within according to the speaker the next two months um, the package to begin to address that. I think that you know betting markets were initially saying that there there actually was a reconciliation bill passed just uh, just last year and that this bill might look pretty strikingly similar to that bill. I think they're trying to stretch it out a little bit. And I think you'll see some replace elements uh, taking taking the part of, of the reconciliation package. but. Then moving beyond that, uh, once we've taken away some of the fundamental uh, funding mechanisms, I think you'll start to see, before the summer, packages coming together from the Republicans saying this is what we envision our healthcare system to look like. And I think that the first couple of things you're going to see are also going to be in that contract with the American voter, such as selling insurance product across state lines.
1: So, Dr. Berman, selling insurance across state lines coupled with a repeal of the Affordable Care Act, um, which includes essential benefit thresholds. Our, our favorite, the metals, you know, gold and silver and bronze. What would that mean for uh, the patient around America?
4: Yeah, I'm no expert on, on health insurance, and so I can't comment a lot on what it would mean to sell insurance across state lines. I've read that it probably won't have a big effect, but, but I'm no expert on that, um, <clears throat> Uh, from, from my healthcare system's point of view, the biggest impact of, quote, repeal is Medicaid. Uh, I don't, and that's true, I think, nationwide. More people have the expansion of the Affordable Care Act and coverage was more Medicaid than insurance. So a lot of the attention politically has been put on the insurance part, the marketplaces. But the numbers say the biggest change was in Medicaid. Uh, that obviously didn't occur in every state. The eventual count was 31, if I remember correctly. States did expand Medicaid. Uh, and so that's, that's millions of people who now have insurance. And what happens to them? I think that's the key question for, for certainly my healthcare system because we have such a large number of patients who have Medicaid. About 50% of our patients have Medicaid. But it's a big issue across the country in any state that has expanded Medicaid. Uh, so the key questions there are the speed with which we do something with the expansion of Medicaid. I think it's critical that there be a runway. This, this is the biggest part of many states' budgets. It's a huge part of the federal budget. It's a big part of the economy. And I don't think it's wise to change things abruptly uh, under those conditions. And in Speaker Ryan's plan... Uh, there's no. There's. It states they wouldn't change Medicaid expansion until at least 2019, and then the dates after that get understandably vague. So I think that's good to see that there's the recognition that whatever change is going to be made, there needs to be time for healthcare systems, insurers, etc., to get ready for it. Um, so I'm happy to see that that uh, note of caution. It's critical. The major. Thing that you see in the discussions about Medicaid is the urge to make it no longer be an infed- a federal entitlement program, to have it be a defined benefit, uh, if you will, to sort of, sort of use insurance plan lingo. From the federal government, here's your money; do what you need to do with it. Uh, so, quote, much more freedom in how to spend it, but but surely a haircut along the way in terms of total number of dollars and. One of the critical things is how much is the haircut, and then how fa- how fast does Medicare spend, Medicaid spending uh, go lower than projections? I think that's that's the wording in the Ryan plan. Um, there's uh, being a major Medicaid provider, I can tell you there's plenty of aggravations and <clears throat> frankly bizarre contradictions in Medicaid and in supplemental Medicaid funding that comes to to healthcare systems like mine. And there, there certainly is a point to greater flexibility. We would welcome greater flexibility in spending Medicaid dollars in, in a way other than fee-for-service care, in which the only thing you get paid for is a face-to-face visit with a credential provider. That's not how to do health care. Uh, so we would welcome additional um, flexibility in using Medicaid dollars. Our concern, understandably, is what's the haircut that goes with that? If it's 25%, that's a big deal. We can't do it.
2: I agree with Bill's analysis of Medicaid. And what's fascinating is that this was the exact same debate when ACA was originally passed, and how do you deal with the Medicaid part? And that's why you had so many Republican governors say, okay, I get it, you know, you're giving me a bribe now to accept this, but five years or 10 years down the road, there's no funding, and now what do I do? I'm stuck with a program. And a lot of governors, you know, bet on the come. Like, okay, I'll I'll be out of office by then. It's not going to be my problem, frankly. Uh, and and it's interesting because what we're now facing is the exact same question. When the Democrats talk about 30 million people getting thrown off of ACA, I mean the I mean the true ACA thing is exchanges. The Medicaid is something separate. It was included. And this is why I think a big part of the debate is fascinating. And, Bill, you use the term defined benefit. I think where, where the speaker and Senator Hatch and Kevin Brady and Greg Walden, it's more a defined contribution, which is if you think about the private sector, one of the main tools the private sector used to get their health care costs under control was to go from a defined benefit to a defined contribution plan. And so how do you do that? In the Federal Government sense, while at the same time meeting your responsibilities to the indigent and, and those below poverty line. And that's what's it's going to be a great debate because I it, and I say that not because of the knockdown drag out, but it's a true philosophical debate about how we go forward with this. And what I can tell you is that the the members on the Republican side who are dealing with this, are not that far apart from the Democrats. Nobody anticipates in the ACA repeal just yanking the rug out from all the new Medicaid beneficiaries. Instead, it's what's a transition period as we figure out, can we go from defined benefit to defined contribution? And as Bill said, you know, if you w- allowed the states more flexibility in managing their plans, The needs of Colorado are much different than the needs of New York, are much different than the needs of Mississippi, giving the states flexibility with a guarantee from the federal government that whatever the capitated rate is, it rises with population or inflation, but the state governments have an incentive to better serve, lower cost, better quality. And I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I can guarantee 100% you're not going to have 21 million people thrown off of Medicaid in the next three months.
1: So uh, we actually came together as a group uh, with the lieutenant governor and had a conversation about our conversation we were going to have tonight. And something that she shared then when I put the question out there as to what does Colorado do if we get a block grant, here's your money to handle Medicaid with, and it's not enough? Uh, here in Colorado, we have the shackles of, well, sounds partisan, but we are fairly constrained by Taylor. Um And so the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights doesn't allow us to increase taxes without a vote of the people. So if the block grant comes up light, Dr. Berman said a you know, 25% cut would be simply unacceptable, unworkable. Um, what would happen, Lieutenant Governor? And she said we would really have to, if we got you know, a 10% cut, and no escalator uh, essentially shifting the risk to the states we'd have to turn to the private sector I mean, the money has to come from somewhere um, there's, there's no free lunch in this whole system um, so I found that you know A interesting and B probably newsworthy but now it's only hearsay, I share it with all of you um, yes, uh, out the window Although I, I didn't get my $1 retainer so there's no, no attorney-client relationship um, Jason, I'm wondering from your perspective, um, all of the back and forth, all the ups and downs and, you know, Barry's wise counsel, in my opinion, to take the daily uh, hysterical news cycles with a grain of salt, not necessarily leap on the next tweet and, and bet on, you know, that stock in the marketplace. What are healthcare businesses doing in response to all of the chaos that's coming out of this?
5: I think they're sitting and waiting. They're kind of heeding the advice that you, both Barry and Kate, put out there, which is it's such an uncertain time right now um, that they don't want to make any proactive bets. Um, I also sat up here um, on this panel proclaiming that the markets were saying there was no way that Trump would win. Um, and so I think now people are saying there's no way that you know, the ACA will be fully repealed and replaced. Um, We've heard repeal and repair, we've heard repeal and wait, um, and I think that's really that latter category where the marketplace is coming out. Um, We just got back from J.P. Morgan, which for those of you that aren't intensively involved in healthcare, it's 10,000 of your closest friends and family members descending on San Francisco. No one actually goes to the J.P. Morgan conference. They're just all there to spend time with one another in an aggregated fashion. And we've been going for over 10 years, and I have never seen the level of energy, the level of dialogue, um, and the level of enthusiasm for what exists in the marketplace. And a lot of this comes down to how revenue is generated, right? It's rate times volume. And here's the simple truth. We don't know where rates are going to be, but we fundamentally understand where volume is, even if there is some repeal components to the ACA, because we can't find anyone out there that's saying... 23 or 30 million people are no longer going to be insured. So just like everyone was presuming there's no way Trump was going to win, the natural presumption right now is that really things aren't going to change that much, even if there is some type of repeal to ACA.
1: And yet there are very real lives at stake here. So Dr. Berman's uh, Medicaid expansion and how many folks were able to get health care at Denver Health and statistically, the comparison before and a- after of uncompensated care, um, actual clients of ours, some folks even in the room who've seen their healthcare businesses significantly impacted by this election and the amount of, um, frankly, you know, indecision about what comes next. Uh, so businesses that you know can't get funding, uh, rural hospitals that were in the middle of refinancing, that breaks were put on because. Folks are unsure about hospital financing going forward in, in that case. So with very real lives at stake and a fair amount of gamesmanship going on, um, what, are, what are your best prognostications, Barry and Kate, for a possible timeline for repeal and replace, repeal and delay? Uh, one week we hear that it will all happen the same week, the same day, maybe the same hour, and then a week later we hear, well, sometime in the next two years.
2: W- where are we? Well... Um I I have to know one thing with, for with Jason and, and his business, you know, specialty. It's it's always humorous to me. The markets pretend they love uncertainty because they can make their bets and win big. But the truth is, nobody likes certainty more than the markets do. And it's a it's a classic moment where they're they have all of this input coming at them. Oh my God! It's not going to happen. It is going to happen. What? But here's, at the 30,000-foot view, where we are. So um, Kate brought up this issue of reconciliation, which I know we have a very educated audience, but it helps me every once in a while to remind myself. So uh, reconciliation is a process where the Congress, when they pass a budget, which has not happened often in the last decade, um, are able to say... We're going to find savings over a 10-year period. We can't do major policy changes. you know, under the guise of saving, it's actual budget savings in a 10-year window, and that gets protected with just the 50-vote margin. So in 2017, or in 2016, the Republican Congress, House and Senate could not get their act together, did not pass a budget. So in January, as Kate noted, they passed a budget and they included reconciliation instructions to find an unspecified amount of savings. That bill is the bill under which the Ways and Means and Senate Finance and Energy and Commerce bill, Committee in the House and the and Workforce Committee in the House will proceed finding savings in Obamacare or ACA. That's the repeal mechanism. All along, Hatch and Kevin Brady and McConnell and Paul Ryan, who are the true key figures in this debate on the Republican side, always knew you couldn't just repeal and replace immediately, that the process of putting legislation in to deal with like the Medicaid issue, for instance, was something that couldn't fall under reconciliation necessarily. So it was going to be repeal, build a bridge to try to have things as stable as you can, and then proceed over the course of the next year and a half to finish out the Republican version of health care. Trump says, no, no, I want it right now. Everybody in Washington runs around like with their heads cut off. McConnell and Ryan didn't change at all. They're like, yeah, yeah, we got this. And they just kept moving. Here's why the reason they're moving, and for all the health care geeks in the room, if you wear dual hats, now put your tax geek hat on. Because they didn't pass the 17 budget, they didn't also pass the 18 budget. So they need to get the 17 budget reconciliation done as quickly as they can because the 18 budget reconciliation budget is how they're going to do tax reform. And if you want to talk about what was the core element, truly what caused Donald Trump's victory, it wasn't repeal ACA, though there was a whole bunch of people that, that was you know fighting words for them. It was this sense that the economy is not growing, is not giving its benefits across the board. Tax reform is the way Republicans believe you do that, a pro-growth kind of tax bill. If you wait until 2018 to do that tax bill, you won't start feeling the effects until 2019, maybe 2020. So that's fine for Donald Trump if he runs for re-election. It's not so good for Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan and all their boys and girls who are on the ballot in 2018. So there's enormous political pressure to move as quickly as possible, responsibly, to get this repeal thing out of the way so they can turn to to tax reform.
3: And I think what Barry won't say, because he's he's smart, (laughs) (laughs) is that I think it's a bit of a tactical error on the part of Republicans to have taken on the ACA repeal as quickly as they did. Um, as Barry mentioned, it was not necessarily the core of what was driving the votes in Trump's real base. And so Republicans out of the gate said, we have this, we have this bill. We've already done this. We, we've got this reconciliation bill. It's packaged. It's ready to go. And in fact, in Washington, there was a lot of spin that they were going to have this passed through the Congress in the 17 days between the seating of the, of the Congress and the inauguration of the president. And it would be waiting on his desk for him to sign the he walked into the Oval Office on the twentieth, and frankly, we all bought into that. I, I did, my clients <laughs> did. <what> <laughs> so, so we went forward. And, and to Barry's point about you know writing the the budget instructions for FY seventeen, you you make it sound so simple when in fact it was a very delicate exercise. And even though we all knew that the reason we were doing this with these fake numbers, which they were, um, was because we were going to get to repeal the ACA. This is the holy grail of Republicans. It was a really difficult task. And so when you think about moving into FY 2018 and trying to do it again with a very skeptical Congress right now, even on the Republican side, um, there are no guarantees that we're going to get to the 18 budget. So now we have one reconciliation package and we may have a decision to make. Do we use it? to repeal the ACA? Or do we use it for tax reform?
1: So this whole notion of repeal and delay. Um, repeal, great, check the box. You know, the people who are excited about that can say that's done. But replace could take a while to evolve. Um, if the King household is representative, my wife worked for a Fortune 500 company with one of those great Cadillac plans. So healthcare was a lot less stressful then than it is now. Um, she founded a nonprofit. The Cadillac plan is no more. And we had to make a decision. Do we go on the firm healthcare offering or do we go out into the individual marketplace? And with what was going on in Washington, D.C., we rolled the dice that I'm not so sure about that individual marketplace. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of static. And so we voted with our feet. And, you know, many people voting with their feet over time is how eventually the bottom drops out on some of these constructs if there's not a replacement in some reasonable amount of time. So what is the likely time frame for a replace? Is this two years in the future? And then, you know, Dr. Berman, you may want to weigh in with, what does this mean for real people walking in the door of your ER if we're not so sure about Medicaid expansion, we're not so sure about the individual marketplace? Um, what does that mean for some of the... Elements of the ACA, like preventative care, if that dries up, what will you start seeing in terms of real people in your ER?
4: Yeah, the concern I have is <clears throat> is precisely that we'll see more people in our ER. Uh, what one of the things that that we experienced at our healthcare institution with the expansion of insurance is that we proactively expanded our primary care system quite aggressively. And so the large increase in, in Medicaid coverage, particularly, but, but health insurance as well, in our metropolitan area, and to give you numbers, <clears throat> Medicaid in Denver County went from 127,000 to 210,000. So not quite doubled in size. So a big, big change. What, what we were able to do then was to get those people into care in the right places. So our primary care numbers went way up, our behavioral health care numbers went way up, our ER numbers stayed flat. And our hospitalization numbers stayed flat. That's, that's finally bringing some sanity to a healthcare system. Um, so we don't want most people in the emergency room because that's not where they should be. And and as a healthcare system, it's the worst place for them to be because you can sp- it's very easy to spend money very quickly in an ER. You have all the toys there: CT scanners, expensive blood uh, tests, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They're all right there at your beck and call. It is really easy to spend huge sums of money in an emergency room. And that's my biggest fear, is that we will uh, have policymakers not recognize that taking people out of health insurance, health coverage of some form, in some people's minds, I think, says we've taken away their health care bills. We haven't. We have just replaced them. Uh, and, and unfortunately, we may have replaced them with even bigger bills from the wrong place. Emergency rooms and hospitals. It's the last place we should be doing most healthcare. And I worry that we're headed back that way.
1: So if we get caught up doing tax reform, if we get caught up doing tax reform, which is incredibly ambitious, I mean, if, if we healthcare nerds are also putting on our tax nerd hats, um, there are incredibly ambitious tax reform proposals on the table. Um, if we repeal, and then do tax reform, and then get around to the replace, um, that period of, and this is a question, not a statement, uh, will that create a period of indecision, instability that could affect real people?
3: So I think there's obviously political levers that will have to be pulled there, but those things don't happen in vacuums. I think that the replace effort will be ongoing, and I think a lot of people are hopeful that in replacing the ACA, there will be an opportunity to break it out into the pieces so that we can see what it is that, I mean, what you're talking about are changes to the individual marketplace, and there are proposals out there specifically to deal with that part of replace. What you're talking about is the expansion of Medicaid, and there are proposals out there specifically to deal with the expansion of Medicaid and how do we treat that moving forward. And the tax treatment of health care is another, you know, separate set of issues that may get wrapped into tax reform but also may be their own, you know, small piece of replace. And I think there's a lot of enthusiasm at least in the Republican Congress right now to take small bites at this so that we know exactly what we're doing as we move along this path. And I don't think that it's exclusive of tax reform.
1: So in 2008, uh, rewind, you know, now a full two presidential terms. Uh, the Great Recession has laid waste to a huge amount of the American economy. Um, we need solutions and we need them quickly. The Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP, that everyone love for the moment, then love to hate later, uh, gets rolled out. And President Obama rolls into office, and the first thing he does is not focus on the Great Recession but on health care and ends up passing health care with nary a Republican vote. Is there hope in this cycle uh, to get something done with a bipartisan effort? If 10 out of the 25 folks who are up for reelection in the United States Senate are in Republican Trump-won states, is there an opportunity to reach across the aisle and do a grand bargain?
2: So I think every president has a responsibility to try to lead in a bipartisan fashion. And I say this not being very partisan, but it's just... Having been eight years with President Bush and then with Speaker Boehner and sitting in the Oval Office with President Obama, you know, I can think back to President Bush's first term and the work he did with Ted Kennedy and George Miller and Max Baucus and reaching out to Democrats and saying, okay, I will give away these things if you'll come on board and we can do this together. And if you think about, you know, ultimately, the Medicare Reform Act in Part D, Ted Kennedy, to his credit, eventually voted no on that bill because there were things in it that he just could not do. But he kept the talks going and he kept it together. And he gave cover for Democrats, the ones that you're talking about, to stay part of the process. Is Donald Trump capable of doing that? I don't know. I can tell you that You know, he's sitting down with four Democrat senators this week, privately, just the five of them, having lunch. Does that make or break? No. But those things start to add up. That's something that President Obama never did. He never quite got the hang of, okay, you may be sitting across from a freshman senator who thinks, you know, he's all of that, and you know he's not, but you got to at least pretend that it's an equal branch of governor, government and his views matter. So uh, I think it's the goal. I think every president should have that goal. I think on the, in the Congress, they're acutely aware of the missteps of the Obama administration coming out of the gate, not focusing on what they had to be focused on. They're trying to deal with what i would call is a is a minority of the republican base but very vocal who ACA is a holy grail but if you want to get into the psychology of where republicans are you know and everybody thinks we march to the drumbeat of matt drudge and the drudge report if that's the case even matt drudge has started to hit the white house and the hill saying tax reform Tax reform is what you guys need to be focused on. So, you know, long-winded way, Mike, I think that the Congress, the Republican congressional leadership knows doing the repair, replace, you know, whatever it's called ends up being the verbiage. You're going to need Democrat votes. And frankly, there's a lot of things where, you know, in private, Secretary Clinton's team was talking to Republicans about things that if she had been elected, they were going to put forward to try to fix ACA. So I think it's possible. The Democrats' performance in the last 21 days doesn't give you much hope that they have any interest in doing this. But I think like a small child, eventually they you know, cry themselves out in a corner and some of them start going, okay, if I stop crying, can I get my piece of chocolate? Yes. Some
3: of them have to get
2: reelected. And some of them have to get reelected, exactly.
3: But I also think you can't discount this president's uh, affinity for negotiation. And he doesn't really seem to care who he's negotiating with, who's across the table. And I don't think they, he has a lot of, at this point anyway, a lot of partisan loyalty. So if the deal is going to be with these four Senate Democrats or Um, You know, in my little biopharma nerd hat, um, you know, if it's Elijah Cummings and we're going to have a drug pricing summit up at the White House, he's going to make that deal. He doesn't he doesn't care about parties.
1: I I think that's the fascinating political question here is uh, the famous photo of your former boss, John Boehner, Speaker Boehner, having a glass of Merlot on the patio of the White House with President Obama. And, and things were sort of going the right way, and then all of a sudden they weren't.
2: And the other part of that photo was: Boehner had a cigarette and a glass of Merlot, <laughs> and the president had a glass of iced tea and a pack of Nicorette.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I left out the cigarette part. Uh, you can't say Boehner seen,
2: without cigarette.
1: Seen the movie uh, Jackie? You know she's having the interview, and um, of course I, I don't smoke. She's telling how she is to be covered in the media, so I wasn't going to. Uh, Mention the part about your boss's cigarette or the president's Nickerette. But um, hopefully some opportunity for bipartisanship. uh, And uh, by all accounts, you know, Trump, the art of the deal, this, that, and the other, loves to make deals. But he also loves to get up in front of the crowd and throw red meat to the crowd. And which is the real Trump? Um, Who knows? They're
2: they're not mutually exclusive.
1: Well, if you you make a deal with the the devil, though.
2: How many times do you go into a deal with starting with your closing offer. Yeah.
1: But it, at some point, the red meat has to stop if you're going to make a deal with the other side.
2: Maybe. We'll, we'll see. It's we politics. Continue? It's politics. And we all like to pretend that we're horrified by this. But, I mean, remember what John Adams and Thomas Jefferson called each other. I mean, this has been going on for our entire life cycle as a, as a country. It's part of the process. It just is part of the process. I can't even tell you how many times in my years in the White House, my years on the Hill, where you would sit down privately with your counterpart on the Democrat side and say, All right, I'm going to have to say this. Okay? Yep. And they would say, And I'm going to have to say this. We go, Yep. Okay? But the deal still holds. Yep, the deal still holds.
1: And at some point in in that Boehner Obama tete a tete, the deal went off the rails, uh, and there were a lot of recommendations and blame doling out. And then things got a little difficult. The ability to do grand bargains with uh, uh, the other side um, a, a didn't bargain, happen so much.
2: A bargain and a deal requires both sides to come to the table with something. That's why the deal didn't occur. So we'll
1: leave. The past in the past. Uh, <laughs> one uh, indictment of the Affordable Care Act by folks on both sides of the aisle is this is called healthcare care reform, but it's really just access. And the underlying delivery systems, not enough changed. Uh, fee-for-service healthcare, care, where people are paid for volume, is inherently going to create the wrong set of incentives. Uh, and so there were nods made to accountable care organizations, ACOs, bundling uh, as opportunities to contain costs in the underlying delivery of healthcare, And when last we were on this esteemed uh, platform, we talked about what the market thought of these different ways to try to contain costs. Uh, And, Jason, I'm going to ask you to comment on your comments from last time, where business is voting, but um, should they pump the brakes? Uh, Is there appetite to take on some of these efforts at containing costs as part of the higher-level health care reform or, like last time, is reform really going to be mostly about access?
3: Well, I mean, I think that there's certainly an appetite by some. Um, it's not matched in the administration right now. And so if Paul Ryan is going to get his opportunity to completely you know, renovate Medicare and Medicaid, then he's going to have to do some convincing. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's probably an opportunity to slow down for a little while, but I also think that you know we were discussing this earlier. You have someone who's getting ready to take over at HHS, who has insight into the delivery of healthcare, like very few have had, um, and he seems to be enthusiastic, at least right now, about demonstration projects um, to see if there are savings to be had in the in the market, and I think that. Um, you know, from a Medicaid perspective, there is an opportunity as we move potentially to a different type of a delivery system to step away from fee for service, even in Medicaid, and try and find medical homes or accountable care organizations that can ser- serve that population. And Dr. Price is interested in talking about all of those things.
1: So I got yelled at last time. An accountable care organization fundamentally says, for, for every live in our organization, we're gonna take a flat amount, and whatever happens, it's on us. So we're going to manage their health, and guess what? If we keep them healthy, we, we get more margin. It's just that simple. So incentives are theoretically aligned with keeping people healthy, as opposed to the fee for service model where the more healthcare that's delivered and the more codes we have for delivery of healthcare, the more money we get. In bundling, uh, there's one bundling experiment ongoing now for knee replacements. Someday I'll need one, and you get X amount uh, as the bundle. All the different people. If you imagine your automobile, if you had to go purchase a car and buy the tires and the steering wheel and the transmission and the carburetor and the body, all from separate parties and you got separate bills. Um, that's what happens oftentimes in healthcare now. When I had a healthcare event of my own a couple few years ago. The bills that came to my house were completely mesmerizing. So in the bundled situation, you buy the car, you pay one price for the car. Um, So, Jason, comparing those two alternative delivery models, uh, what are the thoughts out there from a business perspective in the marketplace?
5: Yeah, I I think that, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this because you've seen it kind of real-time play out, but the, the marketplace seems to be skewing towards the bundle. Um, believe it or not, at the end of the day, the the VBR seems to be something that not only Secretary Price, you know, voted for and is supportive of, you know, as a physician, which there's a juxtaposition there to kind of wrestle with. But um, if you talk to people within the marketplace right now, it's the, a determination that the ACOs aren't working. I don't know if broader capitation doesn't work. I actually believe in it or if it's just the execution or implementation of that. But if you look around where capital's getting deployed, um, it's starting to skew more to the bundles. And I actually think that's a pretty prescient comment by the market on where they think support is going to come, especially with, and you guys will be able to opine on this much better than me, but where Secretary Price is kind of coming out, where his track record as a voter has kind of come into play, and where his views as as a physician may may ultimately kind of shape um, some of the interpretation that they put into place.
1: So, Dr. Berman, you've got countless health care providers running around. You're the CEO. Um, from your perspective, if you were advising the Trump administration, um, how do we drive more efficiency in the delivery of health care? We've got to get beyond the coverage discussion to actually reducing this cost, which is consuming 18 percent of United States GDP. Thoughts?
4: Yeah, first, just to emphasize, perhaps everyone in this room knows, at a macro level, the, the medical, U.S. medical care system is incredibly dysfunctional. And the evidence for that is easy. We spend way more than anybody else, not a little bit, a lot. Um, the other, other, our other competitors in a global market spend 10, 11, 12% of their GDP on, on health care. We spend 18%. And you might say that's in some way defensible if we got better outcomes. We don't. We have worse outcomes on a whole series of, of key health care metrics. And so in a business sense, it's entirely dysfunctional. We pay the most, and we get not even close to the best. No businessman would, ex, would accept that, and yet we do. So it's, it's, I think it would be great to have a true discussion about how are we going to address that truly dysfunctional part of our economy. I don't know of another part of the economy that is anywhere, anywhere close to that dysfunctional I think managed care is one of the ways to do so, uh, and I think it's proven in a number of systems across the country to produce very good outcomes at lower costs. And Colorado's familiar with that because we have Kaiser. Kaiser's a major, major component of our healthcare system here, and that's, that's what they do. They produce very good results and lower costs. Uh, so I think that's a part of this going forward. It's interesting that managed care is written all over the Ryan Plan. Uh, it talks very approvingly about the rise of Medicare Advantage plans. That's managed care for Medicare. Uh, and that they hope that rise continues, to, continues on. And they put some projections in there about where it might go. And for Medicaid, managed care is here. So Colorado is a bit of an outlier in not having much managed care for Medicaid. Across the country, more than 70% of patients in Medicaid are in managed care plans. And so we always have a hard time saying no in our society. We find it less difficult to say no to, to or to put limitations on poor people. And so we've clearly said as a country, without saying so, uh, we're fine with managed care in Medicaid. In fact, we want it. Uh, and that's, that's certainly part of the Ryan plan. And I think, I think there's a lot of promise there. We run a managed care program, the, the state's only full-risk managed care program for Medicaid. And our estimate is we save the state 8% per year. Uh, 8% may not sound like a lot. When the bill's as big as Medicaid, it's a lot. Uh, So I think managed care is part of the direction forward because it provides the right incentives as long as it's coupled with uh, very clear and transparent metrics about outcomes because that's how you avoid the accusation that all you're doing is just denying health care so you can make more money. And that's what we have now with better data systems is we can put out that kind of data to be able to refute the charge that all you're doing with managed care is just skimming the money off while providing no health care.
1: And that is absolutely necessary. The argument against managed care, accountable care organizations, capitation, like three terms, essentially the same concept of managing the lives that are in your care and managing them toward healthy outcomes. And to the extent that you do that well, you'll be rewarded because you'll have some margin left over. Uh, one of the arguments against that Dr. Berman's alluding to is uh, it's not a lot like HMOs. You know, haven't we seen this movie before and we know how it ends? And the difference this time arguably is there are far better technological tools, metrics, measurements to measure for quality. And so instead of throwing people into these ACOs and then spending as little as possible, um, now theoretically there are a lot more metrics
4: and technological tools for evaluating success. I want to come back to the bundle payments because I, I think that's getting a lot of play right now, and, and it has some promise. It makes some sense. It would, it would address your concern about getting 10 different bills from people you didn't even know. Uh, the problem with bundles is that uh, you can still do lots and lots of unnecessary care. You just do it with a bundle payment rather than with an unbundled payment, and, and I think arguably half of back surgeries, a quarter of knee surgeries, et cetera, et cetera, aren't necessary, shouldn't be done. Uh, and I think that's, that's true of lots of procedure-based uh, care in the United States. It's overused. And the problem with bundled payments is you don't address overuse. You shift the way that you pay for it to what may be a way to save some money, but it doesn't address overuse of high-tech procedures.
1: So we've got two burning topics Uh, at least, probably many, many more. Um, One one is merger activity and the role of the Federal Trade Commission, Department of Justice, and just how much the new administration um, may or may not nudge them in the direction of being a little more permissive. Um, We have the Penn State pinnacle merger and the FTC's response to that um, that led to a judge actually coming forth with the Obamacare defense that here we have these two arms, and I've got the actual language here. I won't torture you by reading it, but these two different arms of the federal government, and one says, thou shalt go out and find the efficiencies, and then the hospitals go and do that, and another arm of the federal government says, no, you can't merge like that. Uh, should there be greater latitude for mergers to achieve health care efficiencies? Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, one of the Godfathers of the Affordable Care Act wrote extensively uh, in the years following the ACA that mer- mergers and consolidation had to happen to achieve some of these efficiencies. So, thoughts
2: from the panel. Okay, Kate wants me to break the news. Big news. <laughs> so, so the judge whatever the technical legal mumbo jumbo is, but stopped the Anthem-Cigna merger this evening. Uh which gets to this, you know, this question is that is, um, in, in in reading her ruling, and I'm not a lawyer, so forgive me, but it's very contradictory, and it's not, it's kind of your thing about, well, on one hand this, and on the other hand this, and even though this is the correct argument, I'm going to go with this argument. And it, it, one of the things that was frustrating, and in full disclosure, Anthem was a client of our firms in, in this antitrust case is that it, it, you had HHS and CMS privately encouraging the merger because that was the only way they were going to be able to keep the exchanges going. They saw what the efficiencies that were going to come from the merger, and then you had the the boys at DOJ that were, you know, no mergers, no matter what, no how, and we'll find the excuses. So the uncertainty now, which I think disappears, is that you're going to have a pretty uniform set of views about mergers, not just in the healthcare field, but across the board. And so conflicts between whether it's FTC or FCC, SEC, DOJ, go through the entire alphabet, two things. One is that the administration is going to slap agencies back into their lanes. You There are certain things that the FEC over the last eight years stuck its nose in that it really didn't have the ability to do. So that's going to be one part of it. And then the second part is not that DOJ is going to be you know, woo merger consolidation, but they're going to look at it in a very straightforward by the law case. And it, under that, most mergers and acquisitions will meet the test.
1: Jason, what does that mean for your world? Well,
5: I mean, naturally, my views are always shaped by putting food on the table. So I'm a big fan of mergers and acquisitions because that's ultimately how we get paid. Um, but I do think it's very, interesting the way that, and I'm not an attorney either. I've worked with both Adam and Mike on a few deals and they've accused me of being a closet attorney, which I don't know if that was a compliment or not. But the reality is when you actually studied the the Aetna um, ruling as well, um, there was a lot of material that came out because there were internal documents that were basically saying this insurance company utilize their continued involvement as in, as in the exchange is the hope that that would bring the merger together. And the judge actually really hinged a lot of their decision-making on, well, you were just trying to manipulate the system. And if anything, they were trying to participate you know, in, in the system. So, look, w- there's one thing to talk about mergers at a macro-Uber kind of level. And I, I think... Um, that's well beyond my pay grade. But within the middle market, if you're asking people to achieve efficiencies, if you're asking them to innovate, deliver higher acuity or higher quality care to higher, or more acute patients, you have to give them a platform in which to do that. Um, just came back from a home health conference, and at that conference, there's a number of mom and pop providers that simply cannot produce the outcomes that many people now need um, to warrant or justify their participation in the ACO, their participation in the bundle, whatever it may be. So when you start to really think about the ramifications and impact that you have, I'm sitting next to operators that are going to have to no longer uh, have to close shop because of the narrowing networks and the other things that are coming along with all of these technological advancements and and the like. From my vantage point, the only way that enterprise, and therefore the employees that that enterprise supports, survives is by merging. Because it's only scale and the efficiencies that ultimately emanate from that that will allow them to continue to participate and service an ACO or some type of capitated arrangement or whatever it may be.
2: Well, this might sound a little
5: weird in terms of an
2: apples and oranges conversation, but since, you know, Colorado is a bit of an agriculture state also. Uh, This was a debate back in the 1980s about where American food production was going. And you had this desire to hang on to this concept of 40 acres and the mom and pop farmer, and that's where we got our food. But America was feeding the world as well as itself. And the efficiencies you got because of technology and how science has developed it was never going to go to the guy with 40 acres and a mule. And so that's why you have commercial agriculture. And I think in a lot of ways healthcare is is in that same kind of state. We all like the concept of the small town doctor and you can call him at all hours and it, it just works that way and the hospital will take you cuz you know somebody kind of thing but if you think where technology has brought us, the small doctor out in middle Colorado who has no capital, who has no access to cutting-edge technologies, and he's has a patient, and he read about something in a manual, and he's got to send him 300 miles away to go get hooked up to some machine, that's not efficient anymore. And and this is where you know healthcare which is probably the most difficult industry to do this in, you've got to take the personal emotion out of it and, and not focus in this context on the individual but on the greater good. How do you benefit the individual through the efficiencies and the models of scale?
5: It is interesting. Just one kind of follow up on, on that merger and acquisition tension that exists. We're seeing a lot more what I would call kind of cross-subsector uh, merger activity uh, than we've seen in the past. And I think that gets back to the scale concept of really delivering um, a, an integrated solution to the marketplace. And we're seeing you know, hospitals that want to be payors. We're seeing payors that want to be providers. So I think some of the merger dynamic, too, isn't going to be insurance company, insurance company. It's going to be health system and payor. It's a dirty little secret for us. If we're fortunate enough to work with one of your enterprises, we want to make sure that either a health system or a payer group is interested in buying you because they have more money than God. And so at the end of the day, we're always looking for who are the buyers that are most likely to pay the highest valuation. And you have all of these healthcare providers out there running around trying to be something that they've historically not been. I don't know that that's a necessarily a bad thing. There's a lot of innovation uh, and efficiency that, that really can come from that.
1: So uh, we are now going to get you all involved in the game. Uh, it's your opportunity to vote. So if everyone could uh, get out their cell phone. This is uh, the most fun part of the whole evening, so hang, hang in there with us for it. But um, you all know the first question. This is an easy one. Party affiliation. And the numbers are coming in. Uh, get your votes in. This sort of gives us a little framework, context for the evening. And they're jumping around. I think we're going to end up with we're closing the polls here uh, 18 Ds, eight Rs, nine, 10 unaffiliated, and one libertarian. Go, Gary, go. OK. <laughs> so next question. Um, in last, And this is all totally confidential. You will not be spammed. You won't be anything by, by this. Um, so completely secure line. Um, and none of this is going to be unveiled publicly or attributed. Uh, who did you vote for in the last election? And polls are closing. We have 13 Trump voters, 30 Clinton voters, Uh, three other, and one person did not vote.
6: (laughs) Now, now.
1: I was just going to comment how wonderfully civil this policy discussion was. And educational. And don't you wish that Morning Joe or Fox News had had these panelists, not necessarily me, but... um, Next question. Did healthcare issues impact your vote? All right, we've got... uh, Upwards of 30 of you said it impacted your vote. Some uh, upwards of 10 significantly, and seven people not at all. Next question. Your connection to the healthcare industry, again, key for context. And you've got all this on the piece of paper that was on your chair, so I won't read these to you in the interest of time. Okay. We have uh, 16 provider medical services company folks, four folks from Payors, uh, two, owner, investor, and in health care company. 24, professionals. That's a pretty broad category. Legal, banking, investment, banking, accounting. Um, and one, pharmaceutical, medical devices, health IT person. Okay, now the fun stuff. Question five. Should insurance companies be barred from imposing lifetime benefit caps and denying coverage for preexisting conditions and be required to cover children until age 26? Uh, A is yes, B is no. Uh, Surprisingly, to me at least, uh, we have almost 10 people saying no to this question, uh, a dozen now, and 39 people saying yes. Uh, So polls are closing. Moving on to the next related question, this one piggybacks off the prior. Would your answer to the prior question change if retaining those items required Uh, retaining the individual mandate and or raising taxes to pay for those items? All right. Well, uh, only nine people said yes, their answer would change. Uh, So 40 folks and growing would uh, be willing to retain the individual mandate uh, or raise taxes to pay for retaining those aspects of the Affordable Care Act. So what we didn't yet have time to tease out was the fact that the president, after his meeting with President Obama, came out of there and said, hey, some of these aspects may be good to keep. Um, and those three that were listed there were, were on the list of goodies. Um, the goodies have a price tag, and, and we can come back to that. Uh, question seven, the best way to reduce health care spending, mergers, partnerships, and consolidation, all of which will put the Ficken children through college. Accountable care organizations and integrated care systems. Uh,
2: Can I I interrupt? Uh, uh, No lobbying mid question. No, no, no. This was, Michael made a terrible error. I'm going to step in. Um, The answer F keep ACA in place as is. Well, that'll
1: get zero votes because it's not a choice. So, you know, Barry, this is very conspiratorial. Um, bundled payments is C. Information technology is D. Uh, innovation through new drugs and or medical devices is E. And one of those couple of hot topics we haven't gotten to yet is drug pricing. I promise you'll get to vote on that. Uh, so the votes are rocking and rolling for accountable care organizations and integrated care systems. Um, Jason, we're only going to have so many mergers to do because only nine people voted for that. (laughs) Bundle payments, only three. So bundling is uh, suffering mightily. And information technology, seven. So we know that the uh, Miller children and their college future are tied to information technology. Uh, It's why we give you the context on the composition of the room before we start voting on the substantive stuff. So question eight, the top driver of health care spending. Poor communication coordination among disparate providers is A. Uh, Paperwork required, generated by payors slash regulations. And by the way, these are like the the LSAT that we lawyers had to suffer through. You have to pick the best answer. There's more than one right answer, but you have to pick the best answer for you. Unlike the LSAT, there's not a test taker grading you. Uh, C. Well-intentioned physicians over-prescribing treatments, drugs, and devices D, outright fraud and abuse. And we haven't spent much time on, on this, but some of these healthcare regulatory laws are predicated on the fee for service model. If we move away from that, do we need to change START? Do we need to change anti kickback? Get to that a little bit later. And then E, medical malpractice litigation. Where are the uh, Republicans in the House? This is a, a hot topic. Uh, any chance for med mal reform on the Hill?
3: There's always a chance. Well.
1: <laughs> That's like Jim Carrey and So You're Saying There's a Chance That's
4: Right See, she told
1: me she's going to work in some funny stuff Um, Next up is her impression of Spicer, (laughs) Melissa McCarthy style (laughs) No? Come on Uh, Poor Communication is winning handily at 21 votes Uh, Paperwork is at 14 And Well-Intentioned Physicians Over-Prescribing also at 14 Only one person says Outright Fraud and Abuse um, that's the OIG regulator in the audience. <laughs> and no one said med mal litigation, which is staggering. I guess everyone's got their favorite items to vote for. Uh, number nine.
2: Lawyers conducting <laughs> Who's going to,
1: like, challenge? Okay, but, you know, we have a few industry people in here who don't like litigation. Uh, number nine, accountable care organizations and integrated care systems, which were so popular as a way to curtail spending. Um, a are an opportunity to drive better patient outcomes at lower cost. <coughs> B risk violation of important laws such as corporate practice of medicine, anti-kickback, self-referral, STARK, etc. Uh, C are simply a new version of the HMO, and quality and patient choice may suffer. And the votes are rolling in.
4: Were the LSATs really this bad? They were awful. <laughs>
1: Um, You know, the the test writers are evildoers. So uh, this is a resounding win for ACOs are an opportunity to drive better patient outcomes at lower cost. 35 votes and growing. Only two votes, uh, only two people, the the OIG person from last time and somebody else, are concerned about violating laws. And nine people think they're uh, simply a new version of the HMO and quality and patient choice may suffer. So uh, those nine people think it's just old wine and new bottles. Question 10. Repealing health care regulations like Stark to promote alternatives to fee-for-service medicine like ACOs, bundling, and integrated care systems will, A, enable alternatives to fee-for-service medicine to thrive, uh, B, be unnecessary, as only limited waivers should be granted on a case-by-case basis, C, would be a terrible idea. Healthcare regulations exist for good reason. So, um, the OIG crowd is growing. Um, there are six folks who picked C, uh, that it would be a terrible idea. Healthcare regulations exist for good reason. Somebody just changed their vote. Don't let me influence you all. Uh, B, unnecessary, only limited waivers necessary. Six people, 26 people want to repeal Stark. Uh, so, Orrin Hatch has supporters in this room. I'll let them know. That's exciting. That is interesting. Uh, so, next question. Eleven, mergers. The Ficken family, partnerships and consolidations in healthcare uh, are an important tool to drive efficiencies, including better patient outcomes at lower costs, A. B, pose antitrust and other concerns, and quality and patient choice and innovation, Dr. Mogum would say, may suffer. Uh, B, is uh, moving up, but... Kind of leveling off here at five votes. Um, see, you all can read these. Uh, these mergers are unnecessary to contain cost efficiencies, can be obtained through other means. That Those are our FTC and DOJ people. That's up to six votes. Are a passing fad. One person thinks mergers are a passing fad. We'll let you and that person have a talk. Yes. See me so 29 of you. We've, we've recapped the other categories. Uh, 29 and growing think mergers are an important tool to drive efficiencies. Uh, 12 antitrust rules should be relaxed for healthcare care mergers, partnerships, and consolidation. A, agree strongly consolidation is necessary to drive efficiencies, including better patient outcomes at lower costs. Uh, B agree, but relaxed rules for healthcare consolidation should only be allowed on a case by case basis. C uh, antitrust rules being relaxed unnecessary to contain costs. The antitrust laws exist for good reason, and efficiencies can be obtained through other means. And the polls are closing. We have 20 of you who agree, but relaxed rules should be done case by case. That's 23. Twenty-four and growing. Um, Twelve of you agree strongly that antitrust rules should be relaxed. Seven of you who are DOJ, FTC FTC, uh, spies think that it's unnecessary to relax antitrust laws. They exist for good reason. Question 13. High drug prices, which we have yet to have the opportunity to debate on this panel, Uh, High drug prices represent, A, a fair return on investment for companies making substantial investments in drugs that enhance quality of life, or B, price gouging that should be curbed through legislative action, or we could tack on to that, or the power of the bully pulpit of the President of the United States. Or Twitter. Or Twitter. We'll we'll tweet until people lower drug prices. So in all seriousness, the votes are coming in, and it looks like this one may flip from last fall. I won't tell you the outcome on this very same question last fall. It was a lot closer in the fall, um, and we have flipped the vote this time. So uh, only 17 people think fair return on investment. 30 people and growing think high drug prices represent price gouging. that should be curbed. So President Trump, have a very full plate. Question 14, Amendment 72, which failed... Uh, at the ballot boxes past fall, uh, just for fun, I figured I'd ask the question again. So, to, should Colorado raise taxes on cigarettes and tobacco, 84 cents a pack to 259 per pack, to fund health-related programs? And the votes are coming in, and this is a resounding win for yes. Uh, somehow, this failed at the polls. Uh, Dr. Berman is uh, referencing a few dollars that were spent to defeat it. Uh, Seventeen million. Seventeen million. So forty-one to eight, uh, we this room voted for forty-one to eight to raise this price. Um, and last fall, this room voted with a seventy-five percent yes margin to raise taxes on cigarettes to fund health-related programs. The logical extension of that question fifteen. Should the state raise taxes on soft drinks, a penny and a half per ounce to fund health-related programs, Philadelphia has undertaken this, a number of other municipalities on a municipal level. So hypothetically, if you're up for doing it for cigarettes, why not for sugary (coughs) beverages? And uh, not as resounding as the cigarette vote, but 38 and growing say yes, uh, 10 say no. So if this room were the legislature and we had the power to tax in Colorado, which we don't, we could vote ourselves a tax on sugary beverages. So the polls are closed. Um, the votes beg a lot of fun questions and follow-ups. Um, I'll give the panel an opportunity for any burning follow-ups coming out of this voting, and then we'll have a short Q&A. a All right, right to Q&A. Uh, Nobody wants to tackle the high drug prices uh, other than than the Twitter account. I will. All right. Barry, high drug prices. Just abolish drug advertising. All right. So um, much like Dr. Berman blamed the money spent to defeat the tobacco vote, uh, Barry is saying that advertising is fueling high drug prices. So... uh, our Q&A from the audience, Becky Martin's got the mic. We have our first question from my partner, Sharon Caulfield, in the back of the room.
7: Thank you. Yes, Sharon Caulfield for Brownstein. And uh, I'm always interested in these panels because uh, there is so much focus on essentially the way healthcare is delivered in large markets. Um, the discussion about the ACAs and the ACOs, the accountable care organizations, is really interesting, but I have two siblings that live in Alaska. And in Alaska, there's, what, 750,000 people in the whole state, and probably 40% of them are Medicare, probably another 20% are Medicaid. So the And then the rest of them are all, uh, someone once told me Alaska is a socialist government run by Republicans, um, so there's an awful lot of people who are on a state health plan. What that means is that you end up with a... a, a commercial population of probably less than 200,000 people. And we have that not only in Alaska, it's a, very, it's a very easy to understand state, but it happens in Nebraska, it happens in Iowa, it happens in other states. So what can we do, um, if we're really gonna look at the Affordable Care Act, um, to try to bring um, some efficiencies to populations that are really too small for significant competition?
1: So one of the – I'll jump on that one. One of the topics we've thrown around in the past is telemedicine and just how much progress can you make for especially folks in rural areas through telemedicine. I think the challenge is that legislatively um, to do more to promote telemedicine, uh, to get CMS to pay for telemedicine is a challenge because to steal Barry's thunder, it doesn't score well.
7: Salamedicine is great because it's good for access and it's good for quality, but um, it's a fee-for-service process. It doesn't do anything about bringing people into a uh, a system in which you have adequate populations to be able to look at demographic changes, population growth, population changes. So I was kind of interested and wonder what you might say about Susan Collins' idea of Keep the ACA for those states that are interested in having it. Those states that actually have the populations where it makes sense, and um, you know, for other states, keep the critical access hospitals, keep Medicare expansion, because that's what works in rural areas. And those are actually the areas where Trump had his major, um, you know, population support. And the idea that what you would end up with is a um, a whole lot of. Um, people having to be put into HMOs with the one standing insurance company that might be willing to still work in a place like Alaska um, is uh, is probably not going to be satisfactory to those folks because it's not going to end up saving them a lot of money and giving them the kind of choice they want. Just thoughts. But I'd really like to hear from the panel about if there are ways to think about it.
3: So I, I would say, um, and I would be interested to hear Barry's thoughts on the political side of this. From a policy perspective, I was surprised at the negative reaction to the Collins-Cassidy proposal. Um, So Senator Collins and Senator Cassidy put out a bill uh, two weeks ago that essentially does one of three things. Um, You can, as a state, decide to keep the ACA as it is. You can, as a state, decide to take that money and do with it sort of something completely different uh, under certain parameters. Um, or you can repeal it altogether, just let it go, back to the Wild West. Um, which I think, I'm being a little bit flip, but frankly, you know, there, there's something in it for everyone. Uh, and in terms of sort of true republicanism, it turns that decision-making back to the states, Um, It unfortunately landed with a very dark thud. Um, Republicans said, you know, it didn't go far enough and how can we keep any of the elements of the ACA and this is not good, and Democrats, of course, pushed back and said that you know, we can't repeal Obamacare, and so there was that just general sort of political back and forth. I personally think that there's a lot of good in that and that as there's been... These intervening several weeks of you know do we don't we you might be able to see uh, as Dr. Berman said in in transition planning elements of this decision making being left to the states and so is there an opportunity as you said to incentivize community health centers and federally qualified health centers um, that are that are going to main, remain in states that are maintaining their their Medicaid funding I think that's um, you know something that I from a pure policy perspective. Things hold a lot of promise.
1: Question. uh, Heather, your hand was up first. Give Becky a chance to get there. We are creating a podcast out of this, so uh, we want to make sure we get all your words on the microphone.
6: So I am one of those people that likes to kind of shake it up and and, um, act a little controversially. I come from a family full of health care providers, and over a period of time, it was about... Um, capturing everything under the airline curve, and um, my father's eighty, eighty-one almost, and still practicing. He's got four board certifications, and he accepts a lot of Medicare, Medicaid folks, and and um, just believes in treating patients with dignity. But if we think about how some of our healthcare is consumer-oriented, and as consumers. Um, people are doing a lot of research, trying to be educated about relatively simple healthcare, which is moving into untraditional venues like pharmacies and things like that. Why can't somebody create an Expedia, right, where there's a certain portion of that that's offloaded, and we get away from positioning healthcare as an our, our entitled right, but that it's an option and it's subsidized. So I don't know if that's the, the job of the government, if that's the job of some entrepreneur who's really smart and figures this out. But I think there's a, a, a consumer approach that can help, help take care of some of this, right, that we're trying to address our, ourselves to. Because we can't make sure that everybody knows everything about everything but in the simplest of health care, um, there's got to be a better way of matching providers and those seeking health care and what they're willing to do and what they're willing to pay for about how urgent it may be.
1: So I couldn't agree more. And anyone who's ever uh, spent even a weekend in New York City of the Zagat's Guide to Restaurants, and they've proliferated for other cities, and they have these wonderful reviews, detailed reviews of every city, every restaurant in the entire city. and. and Restaurants are surely not as important as our health care. Uh, I think some of the, and, and I welcome the panel to chime in, some of the ACOs and integrated care systems are trying to do a better job of disseminating information so that you make good choices. If you make poor choices, they're going to lose money. Uh, and some of the health care plans are trying to do the same, uh, to offer information through their portals about uh, what's the, the nearest health care provider to you for whatever situation you're in the middle of? I think they're not there yet. There's a long way to go to achieve the Expedia of health care. Welcome thoughts from the panel.
2: Well, I, the, the, the real core of your issue is that we have two mutually exclusive principles by which we're trying to develop a healthcare system. So people like to pretend, on the Republican side, that this is not a right. It's not in the Constitution. The government does not have a responsibility to provide even a basic level of health care for everybody. That's one side. The other side is, and this has been incrementally coming to be, is that, no, the government does have a responsibility to provide health care. And that then entails, well, the healthcare needs of this state are different than that state, and how do you balance them out under our system of government? And the, frankly, that's why we continue to have the Frankenstein monster of healthcare that we do today. And, and frankly, as long as voters in the population and politicians who pander to them refuse to face up to what that essential debate is. I, your Expedia model works in theory for one side or the other side, but it can't bridge the two gaps. And, and think about this. Just, so both President Bush's administration and President Obama's administration, the amount of money they put into the notion of, okay, how do we get the facts out there? And, and how do we get all the data online? And how do we give consumers the ability to see all this stuff? It still doesn't work. Because they're comparing apples to oranges, in two completely different systems. So we, oh, Dr. Berman,
1: you can have the closing word. We're coming oh, to the end saying, of our time here. Uh,
4: I was just going to say, I, I think the Expedia kind of uh, model. The, I can just look it up on my iPhone. Probably could work very well for a, for a, a set of relati- relatively simple healthcare needs. I think the real challenge is that's not what a lot of healthcare is. A lot of healthcare is care for an ongoing chronic illness. In fact, the majority of health care is that. And I'm not at all sure that, that we have anybody who's come up with the expedient idea to, to chronic care. And then the other problem you have is this tremendous information asymmetry between what you as the consumer can probably even take in, especially in the context of an illness, uh, and what you may need to know. So, for example, it's one thing to say I'm choosing somebody to do a strep throat test and to treat me if if it's positive, and in that case, all I want is convenience and price. It's another thing if I'm trying to make decisions about where I'm going to have bypass surgery or who's going to take care of my chronic illness. And I think it's really important to think of those very different situations because they almost surely require different solutions, not one solution.
2: And it gets back to the drug advertising thing.
4: A consumer is sitting there. So, do I
2: want the pill that I end up with my wife in the bathtub or the one where we're riding bikes across an open flower field? Which one is it?
1: Well, you guys have been a great audience, and I know some of you need to be places. Um, we really appreciate your participation in this meaningful dialogue, and I know we didn't come close to answering. Uh, all your questions or or everything we even tried to bite off tonight, but I do know that this was richer, more substantive, and more civil than most of what you're seeing on TV today, so uh, I'll only claim that much. Um, Thank you all very much. You've been a great audience.
0: Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.